The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We are nearing the final, the final few uh, chapters of this incredible book. And um, this week is really kind of part two from last week. And if you remember, last week was kind of a quirky text. We looked at this, uh, this text last week that uh, maybe if you're anything like me, you may have been inclined to kind of pass over, pass by. Uh, it's this this text that was full of greetings and um, a list of kind of shout outs from Paul. And we saw last week that there were 28 people that were listed in this, in this section. And one by one, Paul gives gratitude for them and encourages the church to meet them. And uh, what we'll see in, this, in our text today is he's not done. And verses 21, 22, and 23, we see again this kind of continue. And, and here's the thing. It's easy for us, I think, to, to kind of when we're reading Romans, to skip over a text like this. I mean, it's a ton of people you don't know, names you're not familiar with or you can't pronounce. And so it's easy to kind of skip over it. But as we saw last week, there's so much to be gained for us to stop, to slow down, and to sit with and sit in this text. And, and one of the things we saw was this really beautiful diversity that came out. As we looked at these greetings, as we dug in a little bit, we saw the diversity in this early church. And so if you remember, there were 28 people called out, 17 of them were men. We had nine of them being women. We had a couple of households that were listed. We had, we had two couples that were listed. We had five people who were um, slaves in the ancient world. We also had two people on the other end who were like at the highest of high, people of prestige in the ancient world. We had, we had Gentiles listed. We had three Jewish brothers listed. We had prisoners, friends. Here's my point. Wonderful, rich diversity in these names that you don't know. Beautiful diversity in the leadership. And, and what I love, though, is that it was more than just the leadership. It was diversity in the on-the-ground ministry that was taking place in these churches. Who were doing the, ju- the work of ministry in these churches? Well, Paul in these greetings shows us the incredible diversity. We're going to pick up on this, but one of the things that we did see is that in the early church, they definitely lacked the diversity of the kinds of churches that we have today. Like They, they lacked the, the diversity of the, the, the variety of kinds of churches that we have today Um, but what they did have is a rich diversity within the church, within their church. And and what we talked about last week was we are, we can be kind of the opposite of this. Today, we have a crazy amount of diversity and variety and kinds of churches that we can find. We have churches for all kinds of people, but what we do lack in most cases to our detriment is the variety, the the diversity within our churches. 
And again, with these greetings, we see this wonderful diversity in the early church. Just wonderful, beautiful diversity. And we're going to pick up on this. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to focus us, all of us, back to the gospel this morning. So let me read our text, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll get to, get to work. So we're going to be in, in Romans 16, verse 17. We're going to go to 23. I appeal to you, brothers... To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good. And innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and and, uh, Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church, more greetings, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this text, and we ask that you would help us to to see and to hear your word. We pray that whatever we came into the room with today, whatever you are here with today, we pray that we are able to to lay that out before you, and that you would meet us where we are. God, I pray that you would help me as I, I seek to communicate your word faithfully, and I pray that you would help us as we seek to apply your word faithfully. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so um, Paul starts by saying, I have an appeal to you, this urgent appeal that we see in, in our text in verse 17. I appeal to you, he says. Um, and I got to ask right off the bat, who is he appealing to? Well, he, he's making this appeal, this request to brothers. So I want to pause here, um, make sure we're on the same page. Uh, before we go any further in, the, in this text, who are the brothers? Who are, who is Paul talking to? So here's the thing. Brother can absolutely be a word that we use to describe a male sibling. Okay? Absolutely. Here's the thing, though. That's not the way it's being used here. Not the way it's being used here. In fact, this word, like we use it today, is being used in a different way that's important for us to see. When, when, when it's used in this context, the, the word brother... It's similar to the way that we can use it today. The word brother is a person who is close and bonded together by shared beliefs. Okay? So so this is a reference, church, to the brother-sisterhood we have in Christ. That there is the family of God. This is a family word. This is a connector word. And it's the same way that we use it today in the church. When we call each other brother or when we call each other sister, depending on your background, you did that more often than some, right? 
But that's the same way that Paul is using it here. And what he is saying here, here's, here it is. This is a reference to a fellow disciple of Jesus. So when Paul says brothers, he's saying my fellow disciples. And so what's really important for us, is, it, by the way, is to understand what we're talking about when we say brothers, when we say fellow disciple. So how many know you are called to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, very timid hands. You can be brave. Okay, we know that? All right, this is the call of a Christian to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. At the same time, how many know this is what Jesus has called us to make, to make disciples? Okay, not as timid this time. I like that. Um, this is what we are called to be what we are called to make. So it begs the question, what is a disciple? Because if I were to grab, I wish we had time. I'm not going to do this. If we paused everything and one-on-one, -on -one, we were to interview each one of us and say, what is a disciple? Tell me. What would you say? What would we say? Do we have a shared understanding of what it means when Paul says brothers, fellow disciples, I think it's important that we do, that we do have a shared understanding. So I want to start here because the, the disciple, being a disciple of Jesus has three marks, three defining marks. Here at Stone Oak Bible Church, we, we, we have um, defined it together as we look at scripture by three defining marks, three components. And here they are. A disciple knows and follows Jesus. A disciple is being changed by Jesus, and a disciple is committed to the mission of Jesus. If you notice, this is head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands. So we have a disciple knows and follows Jesus. That's here, right? We have a disciple is being changed by Jesus. That's heart. And we have a disciple who is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's hands. We are not like claiming originality on this. This is a definition used by many. It's just really good, okay? Head, heart, hands. That's a disciple. It's, it's who we are called to be and who we are called to make by the grace of God. And this is who Paul is addressing in this text. He says, I appeal to you brothers, fellow disciples, to those who know and follow Jesus, to those who are being changed by Jesus, to those who are, be, who are committed to the mission of Jesus, he says, I appeal to you. So the reason I started with this is because if you're here today and you raised your hand and said, I know that I'm called to be a disciple, this appeal, brothers, sisters, is to you. This is you. This, is, this appeal is to you. And what is the appeal um, that Paul is making here? There are two things here that we need to see. Watch out and avoid. These are the two appeals that Paul is making to you. Watch out and avoid. Watch out, be on the lookout for, and avoid, meaning distance, separate yourself. So let's look at these in turn. Let's start with watch out. Watch out. Paul says, I appeal to you, fellow disciples of Jesus, watch out. Um, think of this as like a guard at a watchtower. 
It's to be on the lookout, to be diligent. And there's two things about a watchman on a watchtower that we need to be aware of. Uh, One is this is not a passive thing, a passive endeavor. A passive watchman is a useless watchman. Dangerous. One who's distracted, like squirrel, or one who's asleep, or just altogether disinterested. It's not only dangerous to the watchman, it's dangerous to the city, the community that they are a watchman for. It puts the entire camp in danger. Being a watchman requires diligence, wakefulness, alertness. It is not passive. And number two, along with that, this one may sound weird, but a watchman is really concerned with what is in front of him. Not necessarily what's way out there, but what's in front of him, right in front of him. The aim of a watchman is not first and foremost what's happening way out there. The aim of a watchman is is the camp. So a watchman, in other words, is different from a scout or a spy. Okay? So a scout and a spy. In other words, a watchman is not preoccupied with what the enemy might be doing like way out there, right? A watchman knows there's an enemy out there. And there are spies and scouts that can go and get, but that's not a watchman. A watchman is careful with what is in front of him to guard the camp. To guard the camp. In our case here, to guard the church. And sometimes I believe it is much easier for us to say, I'm a spy or a scout than it is to say I'm a watchman. Because it's easier, I think, a lot of times to call out the division and the weirdness and the heresy that's out there, much easier to do that than it is to first and foremost start with our own hearts and to watch the sin in the camp. That's the difference, though, between a scout, a spy, and a watchman. It's easy to call out those heathens out there. It's harder to look in. It's harder to do that. But that's your job as a watchman, is to guard to guard. Um, and this is, again, not a passive thing, an active thing, requiring you to be alert, engaged. And it's also not an out there thing, out there problem. It's first and foremost, guard the camp. Guard the camp. Watch out. Be alert. So Paul, he urges us to watch out. And what are we watching out for? Well, our text says, Um, Those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. I want to be really careful here because if you notice, we are not only called to watch out for the divisions and the obstacles, right? What does our text say? Our text says we are called to watch out for those who cause divisions and those who create divisions. Obstacles. So our call as disciples is to be watchmen for division causers and obstacle creators. If you're familiar with your, the New Testament, you'll notice that one of the primary calls and responsibilities of an elder in a church is to be on guard, to watch out for the sheep, to protect doctrine of the church, right? 
amen to that. If the church doesn't have healthy, godly leadership, the church is prone to attack. Here's what I want you to see. It's not just elders. It's not just elders. It's all of us are called to be watchmen, to guard, to to spot division causers and obstacle creators, to not only watch for division and obstacles, but watch out for those who would cause and create them. And Paul encourages us to be watchmen, to look out. Now, there is nothing new under the sun, and I want you to hear me. There's nothing new under the sun. The enemy's plan to attack the church has really not had to change much through the years. Because here's the reality. Um, Cause division, create obstacles. Like, this has been his, his attack from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he would want, the enemy would want nothing more than for us to create continually us versus them. Me versus y'all. The enemy would want nothing more than for us to do that within the church to create obstacles and and to to cause division. So here's what I mean, and I want to start with a safe example, okay? Um, I want to start by first looking in our text contextually at how we see this because things are less painful and awkward and convicting sometimes when we start with looking at their stuff, okay? So we're going to do that. We're not going to end there. We're going to move it on uh, for us to see in our, in our context. But it's important we start in the context here. The ancient Roman church, hear me, just went through a, an absolutely traumatic event. Absolutely traumatic. So the church, the Christian church, was predominantly Jewish. All right, predominantly Jewish, planted predominantly Jewish. But the Jewish people and the Jewish community had just been targeted and greatly mistreated in ancient Rome. And and they were victims here and expelled from their homes, their city, their churches. Expelled based on nothing but their the fact they were Jewish. That's evil. It's traumatic. And that's what had just happened. History tells us that it was around AD 49 that the Jewish people were kicked out under Emperor Claudius. Kicked out for being Jewish. And, and so I want you to th- just think about the trauma that that would have caused. Think about the trauma that that would have caused. If the majority culture within the church was suddenly targeted and expelled. That is a shakeup. That is horrible. They lose their community, their homes, their city. They lose it. Think of how terrible and traumatic that would have been for a community to go through. That's what they just went through. Here's the thing. As years passed in this in this. Roman, ancient Roman city, this ancient Roman church, by the grace of God, the church continued. And I mean that. Like, this could have really done a number on the early church 
but by the grace of God, it was sustained, and it continued primarily through Gentile brothers and sisters. Over the years, the Gentile believers lead and they love this church. They minister in this Roman church. And that means that as the years go by, guess what? This church becomes no longer predominantly Jewish, but Gentile. On the one hand, praise God for that. Right, Praise God. This means the church was sustained. More were coming to faith. The nations were being reached by the gospel. Praise God on this hand. On the other hand, that is painful. That is painful because the Jewish people were forcefully removed. Now, as we fast forward now, um, new leadership in Rome takes, takes power. The Jewish people were allowed to come back in, and little by little, they do. They trickle back in. Here's the thing, though. There's a problem. The church doesn't look the way that it used to look like. The church they loved and they were longing to get back to, they show up and it's like, what happened here? It's changed. They do things differently than we did. They, they don't honor the things that we honor. They... they what happened? And there is no surprise that there would be prime opportunity for conflict in this early ancient church as two people come together and try to figure out how to be a faith community together under Christ coming from two different cultures. This was their world. And so what Paul did in the book of Romans, we're nearing the end, but what Paul has been doing is calling them back in all of their diversity to the gospel, bringing them, them back and showing the way that being saved by grace through faith in Christ unites these two communities. So he's been calling them back to the gospel, but you can easily see how these difficult issues would have taken root in this early church, and you can see, in other words, the opportunities, can't you, for division causers. You can see the opportunities for obstacle creators as it's our customs versus their customs. The way we dress versus the way they dress. There is a op prime opportunity for division here. And Paul, through this letter, calls them back to the gospel in all of their diversity. And he's calling them to watch out for anyone who would destroy that work. Right? This has been what Romans has put out before us. He's calling out. He's saying there will be those who come that are more concerned about their unique tribe or camp within the church, their own customs and ways of doing things, and they're going to want to divide and, and create inappropriate distinctions. The, 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 the us versus them, the we versus they, the I versus you. And Paul says, church, watch out. So let's fast forward. Um, I don't think it is very difficult for us to see all of the vast amount of opportunities we have to divide today, right now, even in this room. We polarize, we, we see obstacle creation and division causing, we polarize on so many things whether it be politics, entertainment, music, the way we talk about history, the way we talk about race, the way we raise our kids, 
And it feels today like there is this perpetual and ongoing division causing. And this is just business as usual for us today. Um, I have a quick example that comes to my mind. And um, please bear with me on this one. Um, It's from a few weeks ago. And I had a conversation. It was a really interesting conversation uh, with someone I don't know very well at all. But this person was very eager to share. Um, And in this conversation, uh, the issue of critical race theory got brought up. Some of you haven't been listening to a thing I've said until I said that. Now you're like, pew. Okay. Um, Listen, I'm not here to talk about that issue. It's important, but that's not why I bring up this example. Okay. But in this conversation, the, the, the reason I'm bringing this example out is because I want to I point out something in this conversation that I had with this individual. I noticed in this conversation how deeply passionate this man was. He was boiling with passion. Um, he told me how upset and heated he was about CRT and, and how it was going to destroy our schools and how, he, here's his appeal, pastor, you have a pulpit and you need to preach about this. And he was, he was really, really passionate. And his belief was that it was, it was tearing up America. And, and again, he was passionate. That's the point I want you to hear. But here's the thing. As he was talking, I started to pick up. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like this. I started to pick up. I actually don't think he knows what CRT is. I have a feeling that this person has no idea what critical race theory is. No idea what he's upset about. And so as gracefully as I could, as carefully as I could, I, um, I could not resist. I, I, um, I asked him, you know, I see you're passionate about this. Can you help me? Just tell me, what is critical race theory? And tell me what specifically that I as a pastor need to call out. I couldn't resist. Um, It was uncomfortable. It was around a lunch, and it was uncomfortable. All of a sudden, the the person who couldn't stop talking is now eating. (laughs) The question was really tough for him, admittedly so. He said, "I, I really can't really explain it. He could tell me that it was killing America. He could tell me the talking points. He could tell me that I was not supposed to support it. But he couldn't tell me what it was. Against it, because his tribe was passionate against it. There was this passion against it because of the powerful echo chambers that this man lived in. There's a tension in this room right now. I hope to ease it. Here we go. Um, Again, I'm not bringing this up because I want us to, don't go squirrel on me and go over there, okay? I'm not bringing it up for this reason. I'm bringing this example up because it was an example that I couldn't, there's no better example to see how to kind of highlight the temptation that we have to be lemurs, 
division lemurs. Naive division lemurs. Here's the thing. Are there important issues in, in this? Absolutely. Are there differences in our culture dealing with race and history? Yes. Are they important? Yes. Should we talk about them? Yes. Absolutely. But so often, as with the case with this man, we need to first search our hearts to see something important about ourselves. You know what that important thing is? Is that there is this powerful allure that we feel in our hearts. It's like it's pulling us. That we feel in our hearts toward tribal division. We love making camps and giving people labels. We love it. And oftentimes, those camps mean more than the actual issue at stake. And, and I really believe this, that we cause division because it feels really good to be able to hide within something. We uh, create obstacles. I believe this because it is so much, it feels so much safer to have something that keeps them out. We create division, create obstacles. I think we see this in our world. But let's get a little more honest here because. It's a good thing we don't do that as Christians, right? Well, maybe not. I think it is not actually all that difficult um, to shine the, the, the spotlight in a little bit here. Because we love to create distinctions. Love it. We love to categorize ourselves. We are this. They are this. We dress this way. They dress this way. We do ministry this way. They do it that way. And we need to watch out because here's the thing. It just doesn't please Jesus. That's not the call of a disciple. The, the I'll put it this way. To come to the cross, to be a part of a church, to go to those communion tables. We do that because Jesus, his work, the gospel, not Jesus plus something else. Not Jesus plus something else. Any Jesus plus argument that you want to make, let's just come back to this text is division-causing and obstacle-creating. Now, are there issues that are profoundly connected to the gospel? Do we need to speak into those? Absolutely, we do. But our call is to watch out for our own hearts that want to divide, to create division. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't think about that Facebook post. Think about you, your own heart, to want to divide, to want to create obstacles. Our call is to watch out for that. And it's not only to watch out, notice it's to avoid. The second command, 
or um, the second appeal that Paul makes is not only watch out, but he says avoid. Notice, it does not say try to convince them otherwise. It does not say be nice to them, have them in your home and woo them. It doesn't say just ignore them, they'll go away. What does Paul say? He says avoid them. There are those who are breeding division in the church causing divisions in the church, who are creating obstacles that are contrary to the gospel. We are to watch out for them, and we are to avoid them. This echoes, church, the words of John, uh, 2 John 10 and 11, where it says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Here's the greetings again. He was pouring out the greetings. Well, here, don't you dare greet him. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Hear that? Watch out and avoid. Sometimes we do a lot of damage when we have some kind of division causer and we want to make sure to hear them, give them a platform. No! Avoid them. Instead, they are motivated in serving what? Their own appetites. Their own appetites. And it's more than that because not only is, is it the motive thing, but we watch and avoid them because they're dangerous. Paul says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. See, division causers and obstacle creators, what do they do? They prey on the naive. It's like wolves among sheep. Like wolves among sheep. We watch out for the wolves, and when we find them, church, we do not snuggle up with them, and we do not invite them into our homes. We distance, we avoid them because they are wolves among sheep. And it is dangerous. This is Paul's argument. Watch out and avoid. Um, listen, we are called as the people, God, as disciples, and as the church, we are called to proclaim the gospel. Not to take away from it, not to add to it, not to modify it. We are called to proclaim the gospel. So if you would go with me here, from this point on this morning... I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We're just going to really dig in on that, on the gospel. So I think that's where Paul is going here. We need to understand something about the gospel that is really, really important because the gospel of Jesus is, you can look at it in two ways, okay? The first thing that the gospel of Jesus does, first and foremost, hang with me when I say this, is it divides. It divides. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Do not think, he says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's the Prince of Peace talking, but we'll, we'll get to that. I have not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. We'll stop there. But Jesus says, I came as a sword. What does a sword do? It cuts. It divides. It, it, the gospel 
cuts. Listen, brothers and sisters, fellow disciples, we cannot soften that. We cannot try to get in there and make that tip of the sword a little less sharp. We cannot soften this or modify the gospel to be less divisive in our culture. The gospel cuts. More than that, you got to hear this too. The gospel is actually crazy to the world. There's a big obstacle that you have when talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus about the gospel. You know what that, that, that obstacle is? Is they think you're crazy. And, and the, the scripture warns us in this. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the wor- word of the cross is what? Folly. We don't use that word. Think crazy. It's crazy foolishness to those who are perishing. But Paul says, but to us who are being Saved is the power of God. So here's the first thing about the gospel that we need to know. It is divisive like a sword, and it is crazy to the world. Okay? Um, In other words, in other words, the reason I bring this up is because the gospel itself, in some ways, causes division. The gospel itself, in some ways, creates obstacles. You follow me? The gospel itself does that. And we need to know that. We need to preach that. We need to expect that, stand by that, not soften that. Our gospel does that. That's the first thing we need to know about our gospel. The second thing, though, is in the midst of that, in Christ, our gospel unites us. It unites us in all of our diversity. Here in the church in Rome, in us today, it brings together all kinds of people, rich, poor, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, slave, free, black, white, tall, short, CEOs, and bag boys come together. In no other world would those kind of people share a table together. But that's the Lord's table because that's what the gospel does. It unites us. There is no special seating or a special communion table for this kind of people and then another one for this kind of people. Um, We need to repent and ask forgiveness if we've done that. And by the way, you're not the first one to do that. If you read in James, uh, James, in the book of James, condemns the church for doing the exact same thing, specialized seating. We can't do this. We need to repent for this. There's nothing new under the sun. And in Christ, we are united in the gospel in all of our diversity. Now, I said all this. The reason I said this is because I believe that our tendency is to want to flip these things around. And here's what I mean. I believe we have this tendency to want to flip this around and start to preach a gospel that does not cut. A soft smushy, fluffy gospel, and at the same time, be rigid and divisive within. You see what I mean? I think we have the tendency to get this backwards, to preach a fluffy gospel and then to turn turn to each other and divide against each other in the church. We get it backwards. See, we need to proclaim, church, a gospel that cuts and a gospel that unites. 
We've got to get this back. We've got to get this back. So Paul says, be watchful and avoid the division from within. Because here's what they do. They use flattery. What is flattery? Flattering, flattery is dangerous. Because what flattery does, it's manipulation. It's me telling you what you need to hear in order for you to do the thing I want you to do. I appeal to your insecurity, your pride, your fear. And I flatter it as to manipulate you. Paul says, they use this, and they use not only this, but smooth talk. It's slick, and it's convincing. It's dangerous to divide and to feast on the naive. Paul says, be on guard, actively watch out, actively distance. I want to say one more thing about this active distancing before I move into our final thing this this morning. Um, This does not mean, when I say avoid, Here's what I don't want you to hear. Um, let's say there's a field of sheep and a wolf is coming. Do you know what avoid? I don't want you to hear me wrong here. Avoid is not when we see that wolf coming and we go, peace, I'm out. And we just let that wolf come and feast. Like, it is not a call for you to avoid wolves by running and letting the wolves feast on your brothers and sisters. Hey, this, is, this sounds crazy, but it's important to see this because here's the thing. If you, by the grace of God, are wise enough to see a wolf, to spot a wolf, to know that there is danger, then you, by the grace of God, are there for a reason. By the grace of God, the strength of God, you are there for a reason to help protect the naive sheep. It means that you help the vulnerable sheep to distance from that wolf. You don't distance from the sheep so they go after them. You help the sheep distance themselves from the wolf, not just run for the hills. There will be times when that is going to be your role in the body of Christ, to see a problem and to step in in the grace and power of God to protect your brothers and sisters. There will also be other times, and I'm just gonna say this up front, where you will be the naive sheep. As smart as you are, as wise as you are, there will be times when you won't even see it coming, when flattery and smooth talk have worked, and you will need brothers and sisters around you to watch out and to help you avoid. This is what it means to be a part of of a church. Don't cheapen what it means to be a part of a church. This is what it means. There will be times when when you are given eyes to see, and there are other times when your brothers and sisters will be given eyes to see. We need each other to help watch out and to help avoid. Verse 19, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. And I, I, I love this. I, technically, I don't love this because it is exactly the opposite of what I am and what we are so many times, this text. In fact, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, calls this out. Um, this is fun. Uh, Jeremiah says, for my people are foolish you got to read this with an attitude, I think. They know me not, and they are stupid children. (laughs) 
God, I love it. They have no understanding. And then listen to the statement. They are wise in doing evil. And how to do good? They don't know how. They don't know. Church, that's exactly the opposite of what Romans says. It's the exact flip. And that is us in our sin. We are wise in doing evil and not knowing how to do good. But praise God for his grace. Praise God for his work in our hearts and our lives. If, if you've ever been, if you've ever seen the power of God transform you, praise God, when he takes you, not knowing what is good and, and, and being innocent of evil, when he takes you and transforms you. Remember when we defined what a disciple was at the beginning? If you remember the second distinction, the first one knows and follows Jesus, Second one, being changed by Jesus. Third, being committed to the mission of Jesus. If you remember that second one, that second one here is, is a disciple is being changed by Jesus. The change that I just put on the screen between Jeremiah and Romans 16, that is the change that I'm talking about. That's the work of God. That's not our own power. That's God working in us, changing us and sanctifying us in his grace. And then Paul finishes this with this powerful and wonderful statement. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're going we're gonna to finish with uh, looking at this because, listen, church, God has a plan, and that plan is to save you, redeem you, and it's not a new plan. It was way back at the beginning. In fact, these words from Paul echo back all the way, call us back to the very, very beginning. If you remember, you don't have to turn with me here. If you remember the first couple pages of your Bible, God creates everything out of nothing for his glory, and it was good. It takes a few paragraphs to arrive at Genesis 3 when we see the fall, when Adam and Eve thought they knew better, when the enemy used smooth talk and flattery and appealed to their appetites, and they believed a lie over the truth, believed a lie over God, and they sinned against God. And in this tragedy, this brokenness, sin enters into our hearts and enters into creation. And the creation that was once said, it is good, now because of sin is groaning under the weight of the curse of sin. And so what happens is God calls Adam and Eve and the serpent to him. And before removing Adam and Eve from the garden, from his presence, in the midst of this painful moment, God says something to the serpent that I want to bring out. It's going to sound real familiar. I'm going to bring this out. He says in, in Genesis 3 and in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and um, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel." He says, one day Satan, one of the sons of Eve, are going to stomp on your head. Going to stomp on your head. I want to fast forward. Because of the cross of Jesus, as we fast forward to the church, Paul says to us in our, in our text today, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
This is the plan of redemption and restoration. This is the gospel from the beginning. It's the promise that God gave in Genesis being reaffirmed in Romans. This is the plan of God still rolling forward. Okay, this is absolute bonus material here. If you would allow me, very quickly, as we finish. This is bonus because I believe this is a three-fold stepping, stomping on the enemy's head. The gospel is a triple stomp on Satan's head. I think it's important for us to end with the triple stomp of the gospel. All right? This is bonus. Again, we're going to end with this. I want to go all day on this. I'm not. Listen, triple stomp. Here we go. Stomp number one. You ready? Stomp number one. Jesus stomps on the enemy's head on the cross. Stomp number one. And in this moment, because of this, because of the work of Jesus, the penalty of sin, no more. It's gone. Forgiven through faith, justified by faith, completed work of Jesus, stomp number one. All right? That's gospel's first stomp. Stomp number two. Jesus stomps on the enemy's head through his Holy Spirit at work in the church. Stomp number two. What this means is that through his people, through his church, through faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit, sin is losing its power. This is sanctification, church. Stomp number two. That's not the only thing, though. We got another stomp. Stomp number three. Jesus will finally and completely stomp on the enemy's head as he returns and as he brings all things to perfect completion. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. We are glorified, new heavens, new earth. So you have stomp number one. That is when Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin through the cross. Stomp number two, sanctification. Jesus is saving us from the power of sin today. And the third stomp of the gospel, glorification. When Jesus will save us from the very presence of sin. This is the gospel. This is the triple stomp of the gospel. This is how the enemy's head is crushed. It's a triple stomping crush, an all-consuming crush. And it gives us the incredible privilege to end our time together with these words. It's the gospel triple stomp that gives us the ability to look at these words and to cling to this promise. So I want to say it one more time as I finish. And you followers of Jesus, you disciples of Jesus, this is your promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The glorious triple stomp.